welcome everyone to another episode of One of Two Hundred, the New Zealand and International Politics Podcast. I am your host, Branko Marchitic, uh, for once doing the introductions and hopefully not screwing it up as I do most of the time when I try and do this. Here with me, uh, got the OG crew of uh, Carl Church. Carl, how are you going? Hey, good, good. Hey, that was a pretty good intro. Well done. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And uh, and I also have, or we also have, Philip Nansen here. Philip, uh, how are you I'm still here. Um, I'll give you a six out of 10 to lower the tone so you don't get wow. too big a head from Carl's compliment. <laughs> well, this is the last time I did. Well, it's, um, that's cruel. It's um, <laughs> it's cruel and deluded yeah. and doomed to failure. Cruel and usual punishment. <laughs> well, uh, this week, obviously, the biggest news has been uh, the the government's uh, new announced strategy for combating the inevitable uh, uh, encroachment of, of the Omicron variant into New Zealand, um, and. Uh, and various bits of fallout from that. Obviously, that's caused a lot of controversy overseas uh, with people who have no idea what the hell's going on in New Zealand swiftly pouncing on this announcement. And who don't to, want to know, apparently. Of... I, apparently, I don't uh, want to take the time to look at anything that might inform them about that. Well, the, the problem is when you inform yourself about something, you can no longer use that as a simplistic uh, uh, talking point to push your own uh, very badly informed uh, uh, policy prescriptions and, and, and worldviews. So, you know, that's that's kind of the issue that they were dealing with there. But, uh, what, you know, why don't we start with uh, the, the, the the new government strategy for Omicron? What, 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 what exactly do you guys think uh, of the kind of policy... Oh, what's the strategy again, Bronco? Bronco, what's the strategy though? Because <laughs> well, I'm very unclear on what the strategy actually is. I, I will be honest, and, and, and you guys and, and perhaps our listeners may take some issue with this. I don't totally disagree with, with the broad thrust of the government strategy. I think um, a sort of kind of a managed um, introduction of, of the, of the uh, <laughs> introduction is a bad word, but a managed kind of... Um, uh, uh, response to the virus, understanding that it's it's not going to get stamped out. I mean, it, Omicron is more infectious than Delta, so it's it, the the likelihood of actually stamping it out through a, a a lockdown, a really prolonged lockdown. I don't really see it happening, um, but um, I think you know their their strategy is basically just to have sort of different phases of restrictions and testing regiments and, and all this kind of thing, depending on how many cases there are yeah. uh, at any given moment. Um, however, there, I think we can agree um, on certain things that are lacking. I think obviously the, uh, the government's refusal, which I find quite baffling to send N95 masks to people for free to make them available for free is um, I just don't really understand why they would do that. It, it smacks to me of the kind of typical penny pinching uh, that, that has kind of hampered a lot of the government's response. But I'm curious to hear what your guys' thoughts is on the uh, the overall thing. I, I mean, it's the same as it's been since day one for me. I think, well, I'll, I'll kind of, I'll make that a bit clearer. So we've always said on, on the podcast that we think the government's public health response and the public health measures are, are generally pretty on the money. Um, that made sense in the context 
uh, of a country that has a, an incredibly under-resourced um, health system uh, and you know they've worked, uh, which is, is the key thing. I think the biggest issue is that as we've had more and more infectious variants, the economic and other policy settings that go alongside uh, that those public health settings have become closer and closer to being li literal public health settings themselves. And the government, except for the initial outbreak, where you know, they had the support payments and stuff, um, has failed to meet that need. And especially like after just the last couple of weeks in Australia, we've seen, you know, everything shut down just because too many people have the, the virus. Um, no, not because they lock down, just because they have to. Um, it would have made sense to me to have some kind of support framework in place. Um, some, something beyond just um, the, the traffic light public health settings. Especially for immunocompromised people and, and, and people yeah, with other exactly. comorbidities, especially, I think, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, like a lot of compromised people are also children who can't get vaccinated. Um, and, I, I, you know, I, I believe it is pretty settled that um, it is not as bad for children, but that does not mean it is not bad for children. And they've, I feel like they've, more than previous times, they've let themselves fall into that um, this variant is the mild variant um, belief without really thinking about how, how much of that how much of that is just relative uh, compared to, to other because the, the outcomes are not mild um, either for uh, some individuals um, or for you know, the way our society works. Yeah, yeah. Look, like, this is what we talked about last time we spoke about Omicron in, in terms of support. Like, um, we were saying this would happen and now we've had, like, increasing evidence from Australia that it doesn't matter if you're officially locked down or not. Like, if people are too sick to come to work, then you're quote-unquote locked down, as in your business can't function. So it's about whether it's about whether that's organized by a central body or whether that's done ad hoc in response to having a terrible disease. Or by a viral body. <laughs> um, yeah, pretty much. Cut that, Kyle. No, keep it, Kyle. Um, yeah, so I mean, we already we, we saw that article out of Australia saying that there are business leaders saying that this is worse for their businesses than the lockdown was. Yeah, and the Guardian, right? Yeah, and they, they didn't even have as much support as we did in New Zealand in terms of um, paying, the, paying the bosses still, but at least to continue to employ workers. Um, so as far as that goes, like I think the um, lockdown versus not lockdown thing is a bit of a, a, bit of a red herring at this point because it's so contingent on the state of, this, of the system that you have. So like China is very pro what we call lockdowns, but they have to be because they've been using a vaccine that isn't very effective against Omicron. And they, if they had the kind of public health um, response that we had had, would probably be softening their response as well. If they had had a, a vaccine that had been more effective against Omicron, they'd probably be gradually opening parts of their um, economy as well. And then in terms of overseas, uh, they have the ICU capacity to deal with breakouts more. 
So I think it's also contingent that um, the kind of uh, partisan kind of finger wagging from uh, the Daily Mail or GB News or other kind of blowhard right wing press about oh, uh, lockdowns are bad because it means this without looking at what lockdowns mean in that context or in that country is just like deliberately obfuscating the actual issue, right? It's the same thing we saw in the first um, breakout where people were looking at, at Germany and going, oh, Germany's had an amazing response without locking down. It's like, well, yes, for other reasons, like there are other things you can do. And I imagine New Zealand's finally finding out what it's like to live in um, Scandinavia and have like the left in America constantly say that you've got everything right whilst being really frustrated that that hasn't been the case for decades, right? So, yeah, we're just being used as a cudgel. I think the other thing to keep in mind, though, and, you know, there's been a, a, lot, of, um, a lot of worry, a lot of anxiety uh, about, you know, um, what the traffic light settings mean and, and you know, getting Omicron and, you know, uh, being at, at risk and communities being at risk. But I think we also need to keep in mind that our restrictions, even though we're like open for business um, or, or whatever you want to, whatever euphemism you want to use um, for the continuation of, of hospitality businesses, um, essentially, um, and, and having schools open or, or whatever, um, our, our restrictions are just uh, much higher than most other countries in the world, um, just at a baseline. Um, we, we do mask use better. Uh, I, and I know, you know, lots of people see stuff like, oh, you know, I was down in um, the city and no one was wearing a mask kind of anecdotes. Um, I, I haven't experienced that too much. I like most of the places I am when I'm indoors, people are all wearing masks. A lot of N95s and double masking happening now as well. Um, and we've seen uh, previous data as well around um, the, the lockdown settings or the restrictive settings um, and in terms of movement data, um, and, and that's uh, David Hood has, has tracked that, um, and you can find a lot of that on Twitter, um, which shows we, we just don't get around as much um, when we're asked not to. You know, we, we comply quite well with those guidelines um, and, and, and significantly compared to places like Australia, um, for example. We're just as unlike, we're, we're much more unlikely to be going out and spreading the virus by accident. So that alongside our incredibly high um, vaccination rate, um, and I, I know, you know, five to 12s aren't um, or like that far along yet, but they're less likely to contract, they're less likely to, um, to spread the virus as well. You know, there, there are a lot of, um, Anecdotes, I guess, um, where people in the same household don't even catch it um, because uh, the person who caught it is like uh, double or triple vexed. They're not shedding as much virus. They're semi-isolated within the household. Um, and yeah, they're just not passing it on. Um, like the, the mitigations are working. And I, I'm pretty optimistic that we... In New Zealand will will not have it quite as bad as Australia. Alongside that, I think some of the fucking uh, narrative coming out around the modelling, like eighty thousand infections a day or whatever, is just like incoherent. 
um, you know, a lot of that's already been um, challenged as being um, not in line with the way we've talked about uh, the virus previously. So we tend to talk about cases. So that's registered cases where it's been tested. Um, and the 80,000 cases is more like um, people are asymptomatic. And so I wouldn't have been captured anyway. We'd be looking more at like uh, 14K cases, which is still like a lot. Um, but there's a, a lack of science communication around it. Um, and we've seen that continuing as well um, over the last year or so. Um, and it's just, it's frustrating. And, and you were talking about this just before we, we got on, Bronco, um, around some of the fear or the worry that you see here. Um, and I, I don't want us to get into a position where we paralyze ourselves um, into, into worse decisions. Yeah, uh, I think with the cases aspect, I think people need to remember the cases, especially in a highly vaccinated population, cases are not the main uh, uh, thing to, to consider here because this virus is, is endemic now, that, or that the idea is to make it endemic. We're not going to stamp it out. Perhaps we could have at one point. I don't know. Yeah. We're certainly not going to do it now. So the, the, the main thing is to prevent people from dying or having uh, serious long-term damage from it or having a uh, long COVID. Um, and the good thing is if you are vaccinated, triple vaccinated, especially, uh, you, you're, 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 you're pretty good on all those fronts. Um, I'll give people a little bit of a, a, I guess, context for what they may experience, you know, from uh, my own experience in the United States and, and specifically in Chicago, where I don't know what the exact rate now is. It was um, 70 something when I first got here uh, back in August. Uh, so not super high, certainly much, much lower than um, uh, Auckland and, and the whole of New Zealand. Uh, and, you know, I can tell you uh, until very recently, they were not, um, uh, they were not requiring vaccine uh, checks at, at, at bars and, and other kind of uh, dining areas and, and other indoor places. That's happened pretty recently. Nonetheless, I have been living a fairly normal life. I, I wear my mask on the uh, on the on the train on the bus. You have to, but but you should do it anyway. Um, I uh, have been going to to restaurants, to bars, to to, to music festivals. Um, all of them, you know, I I haven't gone it yet. Um, uh, I I have been exposed several times, but because I am triple vaccinated, uh, it, there's a lower rate of infection and I have been fine. Um, the people who I know who have been infected uh, are okay. Um, now granted, these are all young people, young healthy people who are vaccinated, but nonetheless, I think it, it's worth bearing in mind because as you say, Kyle, it's no good um, getting into a panic. So you know, there, there is a real risk to people who are not vaccinated. There's a, there is a uh, uh, some risk to children. Um, hopefully they can get vaccinated as quickly as possible. Um, I think that's the other thing I wanted to, to quickly say about the government's response. We've touched upon this before, but it does frustrate me that the government kind of treats this as like, once we get over this next variant, it'll be over and then we can just sort of coast. And, and the thing is, that's never been the case. And uh, it sh the, the government should be, should have been, and it should still be just absolutely trying to get vaccines as, as many arms as possible. They should be going door to door. They should be driving to pe to neighborhoods, to people's houses. They should be ferrying people to, to, to vaccine centers if they can't make that. They should have been doing this the entire time. And frankly, it's unbelievable to me that the healthcare sector 
is still in the shape that it is. Uh, we talked last week, I think, I think Labor put in $24 billion um, into the health sector in the last budget. So that was about a little more than what, what people said was, what experts said was needed to kind of just keep it stable. But why, if, if this is a terrorist attack, there would be no expense spared on how much money we would pour into basically defensive systems, which is what the healthcare sector is. So that's very frustrating. It's incredibly frustrating. And I think, you know, alongside that, you know, I was talking about like uh, support frameworks and, and stuff earlier. My, my number one worry um, is not for, you know, um, people in, in my position. Um, and, you know, I'm immunocompromised um, and I'm not super worried. Um, mostly because I can work from home and uh, I, I'm middle class. Um, I don't have to go out and like see people. Um, I'm not a frontline worker. My worry is that for people who are frontline workers who are, you know, on minimum wage um, or similar, um, who are living in poorly ventilated um, you know, damp housing stock, uh, the, the Kiwi classic of, of housing um, with uh, big, maybe multi-generational families um, because they, they can't um, afford to, to live in, a, in another situation or, you know, parts of um, that arrangement suit them. Um, if it gets into those, like we saw with Delta, that's, that's going to be a, a tragedy. And it's foreseeable. It's it's foreseeable that that could be um, something that happens, and the government should have already told us what they're going to do if that occurs. What economic support they're going to give to those those families or those people. Um, what they should be having stuff up front, like we talked like right at the start, and apparently completely forgotten that some people, some workers are essential, um, and they should be getting hazard pay. Just fucking do it, like. People need to have some some give in the system so that they can survive um, despite having to go out and like breathe in COVID air every day. I think it's a continuation of the same failure we've seen in comms from this government since October last year, where they tried to have their cake and eat it too by saying that we both continue to have uh, a zero COVID strategy as a uh, the Daily Mail would put it, or eradication, elimination. They were deliberately kind of vague about these terms um, whilst saying that they were predicting numbers to increase, um, which, you know, the logical implication of that is will then change something. Like if you don't want numbers to be increasing and your plan is to have zero, then change something to make that be the case. It's a very reactive uh, way of treating the situation, right? They didn't lay out a path to actually uh, achieve what they wanted. And I think this has been a similar thing, this um, Omicron strategy. I mean, even Ayesha Viral, who's normally quite like clear about these comms, is talking about stamping it out, being phase one of a three-phase plan, the third of which is to deal with thousands of cases around the country. Well, then the first stage wasn't stamping it out then, was it? it was- it's not a phased plan. It's, a, it's, a, it's something else. Like, it's not how phases plan. work. Which yeah. is, oh God, this is not a control plan. Yeah, um, but I mean, that's if that's what it is, I think it's okay to admit that that's what it is and that we're mitigating, damaging, um, flattening the curve was a good phrase in the first outbreak and th- that's more appropriate now um, as, a, as a kind of watchword and a way of thinking about it. 
because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to manage our ICU capacity and our country's capacity and structural capacity to deal with diseased people in a way that won't break down our supply chains and our uh, health systems completely. Um, yeah, it just it just feels like they're still trying to capture their um, 70% support uh, health plan that they had in the first COVID outbreak when their, their strategy has clearly shifted. Yeah, and that's the other yeah. thing is like once the traffic light came in, it allowed the government to say, oh, we're not supporting you anymore, like because you're allowed to stay open. Um, and without taking into account or without, um, yeah, the, the amount of risk that people would be able to take on in, in, in that case. Like there are some people who cannot go to work. Like you know, there are some people who can't get vaccinated. Uh, there needs to be anything for them. And, and I know there are some like, um, you know, some some payment things set up for if you need to get tested or get the virus it's like 600 a week i think if you're a full-timer 395 if you're part-time it's like not enough <laughs> like with with living costs and and the like and the the cost of rent here like 600 a week is like less than most people's rent man uh, it would be nice to see the government uh uh, not take a reactive strategy and and I think I have a bit of a realistic view of this which is that this is not going to be Omicron is not going to be the last uh, variant uh, there may be more vaccine resistant variants to come uh, it may not be the last wave and to basically plan for that I mean you know the, the smart thing is always to plan for the worst um, we'll see if that happens uh, I, unfortunately I, I don't have my hopes up but it, you mentioned uh, the frontline workers Kyle it's interesting that that kind of reminds me of the other big controversy, I guess, of this week, which was um, the government uh, supposedly seizing. Uh, Jacinda Ardern has gone full communist. And she has I've mobilized the, uh, the, the New Zealand government to, uh, to she sent uh, jackbooted thugs to, to every private business. They've gone in, they've rummaged through the drawers and they've taken all the, uh, the rapid and tests that businesses were, were, were hoping to use for their own workers and, and said, that's ours. Um, of course, no, that's, that's not what happened. Uh, it's so embarrassing. It's so embarrassing that <laughs> the government uh, ordered a, a bunch of rapid uh, tests, uh, and it turns out some of the orders uh, for businesses have been cancelled, probably because the government is a, a, a much bigger buyer, and so uh, than any individual business. But um, I want to talk about this because there, there was a, I guess, the controversy of this is that it will be somehow, if there was an actual shortage of, of tests that it would be somehow wrong for the government to say, well, you know, th these really should be in our hands so we can distribute to frontline workers and um, uh, where else they're needed. I, I want to get your guys' response to, uh, to, to this whole brouhaha. Obviously, National's gone after them and a bunch of other right-wing commentators have as well. Well, it's not just right. It's, it's most of the gallery um, has just picked up this narrative. And it's it doesn't... It makes absolutely no sense. You can't just keep like putting commandeered and, and seize and, and scare quotes. Like it doesn't make it the case. Like I've seen half a dozen where they have seized or commandeered and then it says in the subheading, um, Ashley Bloomfield asked um, for it to be prioritized for the government. Like <laughs> what are you talking about? It's, it's and, and, and then alongside that, you've had, I've seen other pieces which are basically like, a, a PR piece for some other dude who makes a different kind of test. And it's like, oh, my test is so good. Why aren't everyone buying my test? And like, it's just like this 1,000-word 
um, sales pitch from the the CEO of the company. I'd like to go on the record that, that I myself have uh, also started making tests. So if the government or any business wants to uh, order some from me, uh, I can uh, send an address and, and a bank account number and, and feel free to, to send me some money. They're great. They work 102% of the time. One or 200 tests. Order them today. Quick and delicious. <laughs> Apple flavor. Yeah, it's just, it's very much like a, they're, they're trying to create. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a lie. I, I want to be really clear about that. It's, it's just bullshit. Um, and they're trying to create this, like, look how authoritarian the government are. When they're, like, again, you know, I don't start a communist as much as we all wish she was. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I think there's been, obviously, the, the gallery has seized on the Catherine Rich um, business lobby line of um, seizing the rats of production or whatever. Um, and they love it. They'll, they'll keep they'll keep um, printing that as long as they can. And some of them have really like shown their um, shown their kind of true colors. Was it Thomas Cochran? I can't remember. One of the gallery journalists tweeted that it's wrong for the government to be seizing private property in any circumstances. And I was like, that that is a very radical um, position to be saying in public for a gallery journalist. Like government does yeah. that in circumstances. That's that's kind of what Auckland Council does, and uh, as they're building the uh, yeah. <laughs> various bits of public transportation they got going. Right, and just about, just about every instance of public infrastructure is on the margins. <laughs> there are seizures of various parts of public property. Um, Have you heard of this thing called tax? There's someone that's the government constantly seizing my private dollars. Wow, in a way, tax is theft when you think about it, man. Fuck. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just it's been pretty, pretty um, amazing how much they've like pinned their colours to the mast on that. I just, it's just bizarre the to me. Disappointing. The disappointing part for the the quote unquote left or the labour hacks, I suppose, has been how much they've not supported that as a point of principle. But they've gone actually, it wasn't seizing it, which is true. It wasn't seizing it. But you can also say if they had to seize tests to keep people alive, they should do that. That's the role of the government is to keep people safe. And if people are profiteering and putting necessary bits of health infrastructure into private hands where they'll be distributed via the market mechanism, then rich people will survive and poor people won't. And it's up to the government to make sure that doesn't happen. And so it's, it's our job to seize things to keep you alive. It's not even just that. It's not, it's not even just that rich, rich people will survive and, and poor people won't. It, it's that most rich people will not need to use these tests. Uh, and we don't want to be in a situation where personal desire like irrational economic decisions to go and buy a test just to check um is is trumped um by situations where people need it to go to work <laughs> like and keep things running um like oh i work from home but i've got a bit of a sniffle better do a rack because i don't i don't want to go and get a pcr test like that's absolutely gonna happen you yeah. know like because people want that um, peace of mind. Peace of mind. Yeah, I think a key thing to remember is, uh, and maybe maybe some, some business owners don't realize this, but uh, uh, the private sector does not manage the country's borders. Uh, the private sector does not manage the uh, healthcare sector. Um, and those two things are pretty crucial for uh, their operations to continue. And so, uh, yeah, the government, I'm sorry, should have the priority on tests. Uh, you know, if if it comes down to it, uh, they have to be able to like make sure that 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 border workers can go to work and and you know 
make sure that there isn't a massive flood of, uh, of the virus coming into the country. They have to make sure that healthcare workers aren't, you know, infecting other healthcare workers and making the entire sector collapse. So that, that, that's pretty, um, pretty crucial, I think. I, listen, if, if uh, a business out there wants to go and try and manage the border, um, yeah, I think that would be a horrible idea. But, you know, maybe, maybe then we can talk about, you know, uh, whether we can just sort of let the private sector just get, uh, get tests and, and kind of send things out across purposes um, instead of having a kind of more centralized uh, also, response or something. All, all journalists are listening to this. Um, and I, we, we love having you as part of our audience. Um, don't get me wrong. But if you ran this line, do better. Um, it, it's, it's very clear, even to lay people, once they read past the headline, that it's just, it's just bullshit. It's not. Yeah. And the key thing is people do not, a lot of people do not read past the headline. Yeah. Most I, people, in fact, most do not. Most people, yeah. Um, it's, it's just sad. It's just, it's, it's, it's sad. It's pathetic. Um, like imagine being a journalist, imagine, imagine doing that as your job and then just like wholesale swallowing the the whole boot, you know, like just getting it right into your mouth. Um, like uh, over people trying to price gouge, like rapid antigen tests, there's so many better places to sell out. Um, this wasn't it. This wasn't it. <laughs> not yeah. on, guys. Not on. Um, okay. Well, we'll, we'll close uh, uh, this week's discussion with, uh, with a slightly cheerier topic, uh, <laughs> nuclear war in Europe. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so obviously, you know, New Zealand is, is in some ways limited in, in the impact uh, or effect it can have on this whole thing. But I think it was worth uh, talking about because... Um, it's always important to know that that any conflict between uh, two nuclear powers, especially the two biggest nuclear powers in the entire world, the, the countries that own the most nuclear weapons, um, can uh, very easily escalate into a, a nuclear war that um, New Zealand may escape from, but uh, at least its direct impacts, but would still be horrifically affected by if it ever came down to that um, uh, unimaginable scenario. Uh, and of course, I'm talking here about the uh, crisis in Ukraine. So I guess let's start with how, how are you guys feeling about this whole thing? I'm against crises in general. And um, <laughs> this one in particular, I think is a bad idea. No, uh, <laughs> seriously, I guess um, it's, it's, it's very much one of those things that you see kind of self-satisfied mulling over from all kind of parts of the um, pretentious punditocracy and it's easy to fall into those oh my god the like um, um fat pundits yeah yeah exactly right this is what these people live for so there's a lot of frothing um all around the world but yeah i guess i guess my main like point of of interest in it is that um journalists in ukraine unsurprisingly aren't treating this the same as journalists in the us are or journalists in new zealand are right and it's it's interesting that in all of these kind of international affairs inflection points, the international media go to the loudest voices, which tend to be at kind of big mastheads like New York Times and Washington Post um, with connections to the US security state. What? Going to journalists in the affected areas and asking them what's going on. And that's, we've seen that every time this stuff happens, right? Like the US must be a pretty intense um, milieu of this like conversation, right? Melange, maybe that's a better word. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, just uh, over the last 
I would say week. Basically, it's it's come out that that the U.S. Uh, political and, and and media kind of messaging on what exactly is happening in Ukraine is essentially completely apart from what uh, the rest of the world thinks. Uh, so at this point now, we have German intelligence. We have the Ukrainian president, foreign minister, and defense minister. We have the French government. Um, we have a, a, uh, the head of the European Council and the, uh, uh, the top diplomat at the EU all saying uh, we don't see that a Russian invasion is imminent and it does not appear that they are about to invade at all, yeah. uh, which is completely the opposite of what uh, Joe Biden and the American media and, um, and actually, bizarrely, the UK and Canada have been saying, which is that he, you know, at any second now, there's going to be an invasion. And, and I mean, there was actually a report by, about, uh, uh, or an analysis by a Ukrainian uh, think tank that, that looked at the troop movements that Russia was, was, was doing, that looked at, you know, basically what they were doing in preparation for whatever is happening right now. And they said, well, based on this, it doesn't look like there's going to be a, 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 an invasion in the near term. They can't do it based on what we're seeing here. It doesn't mean one isn't going to come later on, but at this stage, um, no. So, um, yeah, worth, worth keeping in mind, we, we read a lot of U.S. media, a lot of U.S.-based media and analysis. And UK, and, right? And, and the U.K. And it's worth remembering that these countries are not necessarily actually representative of, um, of anything more than opinion in, in those particular political establishments. Uh, it's not to say they're always trustworthy, but we have to be very careful with extrapolating lots of things from, like, from uh, these sources. For a lot of them, and you know, it has been some of these same people. I just just think back to Iraq, you know, like where they they just they just lied and started a fucking war. No, Kyle, the only um, international comparison you're allowed to make is World War II. Every time, that's the only, that's the only <laughs> war that has ever started in history, and we need to think. But we were allied with the USSR. What if this was uh, World War II again, Carl? Did you even, did you right. even consider? Yeah, I, well, when is um, when is Germany going to be, like, flipping? <laughs> that's what I want to know. <laughs> well, you know, the, the World War II example is, uh, I think, really interesting, and, and here's why. Because if you actually know what's happening in this whole situation, it, it's the World War II examples, it's almost flipped. I think what people, what people don't realize and what people should realize is that, you, that yes, Russia is a horrible neoliberal right-wing authoritarian state, has links to the far right, all that. That is true. Ukraine, the current Ukrainian government is not only has far-right people in key positions of power, it has neo-Nazi militias that are part of its law enforcement, part of its military, um, that are getting weapons and training from the United States and from the United Kingdom. And actually, New Zealand, uh, this is where, where it, uh, the linkage to New Zealand is important. New Zealand is a alliance uh, in an alliance with the United States through the Five Eyes Alliance. Um, so we sort of tacitly support this. And I, I want to remind people that, that the, the terrorists who killed all those people in Christchurch, uh, uh, what, three years ago now, was directly inspired by the neo-Nazi militias that are part of the Ukrainian law enforcement and security apparatus. He wore a symbol that they wear. He, he claimed that he went to Ukraine. Um, these people in Ukraine have inspired and they've trained and they've communicated with not just him, 
the other domestic extremists around the world that have attacked uh, people in the West. I, I, I mean, it's a classic US um, military or, um, you know, international relations move, isn't it? Uh, pump money and what well, they're calling it fucking lethal aid now. Um, <laughs> money and arms into the worst fucking people in, a, in an area to destabilize it um, for their own geopolitical gain. Um, yeah. and, and we know how well that's turned out every single fucking time they've done it. I was just going to say, yeah, it's happened so many times. Um, and it's, it's amazing that we don't learn the lessons. We being kind of the, I guess, international liberal uh, magazine reading class, that we haven't learned the lessons of every other, almost every country in the world, right? It's, it's embarrassing. And just to like tack on to what Branko was saying before about the white supremacists, fascists, militias, paramilitaries um, in Ukraine, it's not just that they're in Ukraine, they're integrated into the systems of power there. Like they're not, they're not just located there because that's where they happen to be born. There are, there are white supremacists everywhere, but they're, they're integrated into the power structures there. They're, they have democratic power. That's the terrifying thing about Ukraine, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we might think about what happened last time that the United States funneled weapons and training to extremists in a distant part of the world and what that meant decades later, um, both for the United States, for the American people and, and for the people in, in other countries. It was not good. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, but... <laughs> You know, I'm going to go on a limb and say sending a bunch of uh, uh, weapons and military training to neo-Nazis may not prove a a great thing for either the U.S. or New Zealand uh, in the future, given given what's happened in in the near uh, in the near past and near history. Um, So (laughs) on that note, a little bit dark to to end with, but, uh, you know, uh, you're going to discuss some of these things. Uh, I want to thank both of you guys for joining me on, on uh, this wonderful Saturday morning. Uh, uh, Kyle and Philip, thank you very much. And uh, to make my usual or our usual pitch for, uh, for all of you listening back at home, please uh, share, subscribe, all that stuff. Tell people about us. If you can throw a little bit of money, it's not just saying that we pocket. We can, with, with a little more cash, we can pay people to... Um, edit these episodes quicker and we can put up more content. We can actually um, you know, do more interviews. So all of it does have a feedback loop for us. Um, and ultimately, at the end of the day, we want people to hear the message we're putting out, to hear our analysis, to hear the analysis that maybe you agree with a little more than some of the other uh, media outlets out there. Um, so anyway, with that done, thank you very much. This is 1 of 200. I'm Branko Marcetic, Karshaj Pilt-Nasted, and uh, we'll see you guys later in the week. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation, you hate nationality.